This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. Hello, I'm Des Dealer, and this is the second in our series of Thinkers 50 podcasts with Marshall Van Alstyne. Marshall is a professor at Boston University, co-author of the best-selling book, The Platform Revolution. He's also the co-author of the must-read Harvard Business Review article, Pipelines, Platforms, and the New Rules of Strategy. But what I want to talk about today, Marshall, is your work on fake news. So tell us more. So it's a wonderful social problem. It's really hard. And one of the interesting things is you, you focused on some of the platform research. One of the things we're interested in trying to do is when is it likely to be the case that pl- platforms like Facebook or Twitter uh, or Google are going to be self-correcting? Could we trust them to actually handle news in the right way or can we not trust them? When is regulatory intervention required? What is fake news? Um, One of the things that we argue is a lot of the damage of fake news is probably not quite what folks think it is. Most folks tend to focus just on the misinformation element of it. Is it true or false? And I argue that's correct, but you're missing a a lot of the other complications of fake news. There's other damage. I'll give you a simple example. In one case, there was a rally for a particular president recently. Um, and one of the statements made in support of that, uh, of the president, was uh, you need to vote for this particular uh, president because under the previous president, the unemployment rate was 19%. Under the current one, it's only 3%. That's a completely true statement, but it omits the fact that the unemployment rate had already fallen to 4%, and it may well simply be momentum that's carrying it from 4 to 3%. So that is completely true information. It's not misinformation, but it's actually couched in such a misleading form that it's actually leading you to make some decision errors. So I want to give you a couple of different points on this. One of these is the decision error that's really the problem, not just the truth or falsity of the the, uh, uh, fake news. The other is a problem of externalities. Often it's the case that problems were corrected on a platform by the platform. So if a driver cheats you on Uber, Uber will make you whole on that. If you start to spam folks as an app on Facebook, they will turn off your APIs and cut it off because you are limiting, you're damaging the users in some sense. So that's a case when it would be self-correcting. But in many cases, they're not going to be self-correcting. That is the case when it's an externality. So if the damage is not occurring on the platform, it's occurring off the platform, it's an externality. Um, so give you a simple example. Folks were propagating news about Pizzagate around Hillary Clinton. This is a made-up story about running some weird pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor out of Washington, D.C. Well, this is ludicrous. The folks that are creating this information know that it's false. The people that are propagating this information may also know that it's false, but they're not really interested in that. They're mostly interested in declaring themselves a member of the I Hate Hillary campaign. The damage isn't occurring on the platform so much as off-platform when someone goes and shoots a rifle at a pizza parlor, or it affects votes off-platform. Again, that's an externality. Those are cases when platforms will not solve the problem. Let me pause there for a moment, make sure that we've articulated where, where I think the problems are before we get to some of the solutions and why it is I think platforms do, why they succeed and why they fail uh, in curbing some of these issues. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you um, dissect and deconstruct what goes on with fake news, because I think I think it, it, we are guilty, some of us, of, of, of lumping it all in together. There are obviously clearly different um, interpretations and different situations as well, causing different different types of problems. OK, I think we've grasped what you're saying. It, it needs a finer uh, level of, um, of um, analysis to understand what's going on. 
but we've still got the problem whatever 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 the effect is wherever it's occurring and, um, and the reasons for it what do we do about it so let me first walk you through i think the propositions that folks are currently using to try to address it and why i think they're not necessarily going to do what we think they're going to do and then let's see if we can dig into the uh the nut of what's really happening to try to devise new and better solutions as well as the incentives for why people are actually producing it so some of the solutions that folks are proposing are demoting things in the newsfeed. So if, if Facebook can, uh, can actually try to identify it, then maybe they'll move it down in the, no, the, the newsfeed. A complication with that is, by analogy, it's rather like the spam problem where it simply motivates folks to create more of this misinformation in order to get through uh, the various kinds of filters. Um, other things are certification uh, mechanisms, either algorithms. But if one of the complications here is that if you're producing over 500,000 uh, posts per second, how do you scale this? Is it going to be crowds? Uh, that's extremely difficult to do it. If you're going to be doing it with um, algorithms, do you trust Facebook to certify stories about Facebook on there? Do you want them to have that control in there? That's also uh, a significant problem uh, in it. Um, the traditional solutions, another one is media literacy. Uh, there's a wonderful takedown of that particular idea done by uh, fabulous scholar Dana Boyd. She said, do you, uh, so you want media literacy, do you? Well, in many cases, all that happens is that people don't necessarily want to be educated. And if you take a look at the folks on the far right, for example, they would simply ask you, what gives you the right to educate me? Why do you think your perspective on this is better than mine? Uh, you know, isn't that a bit of a presumption on your part? So that may not be uh, a very good solution either. So what are the complications in any of these? Um, well, that whole, that whole issue about objectivity versus subjectivity. I mean, one, one, person's, one person's news is somebody else's fake news. It, it, it's, this, is, this is the thing, isn't it? This is, this is what makes it so difficult. Okay. And, and even the label, give me one more, even the labeling was another one. So they try to label it and say, well, maybe folks will consume it differently. But it's just like, you know, folks, if they're going to smoke, they're going to smoke anyway, even if it's a label. So most of these solutions, I regard you don't actually address the nut of the problem. All right. So let's see if we can first go through, why do people produce fake news? Let me give you at least three different motivations in here. And the um, mechanism of remedy has to be different based on the mechanism for the cause. So one is an economic motive. So there were clearly cases of Macedonian teenagers doing this for fun and profit. If you can actually generate controversy, you can generate ads, you can generate revenues, you can make some money. So in one case, it was an economic motive. We can use classic elements of information economics to try to address that one. Let me give you two more where it's particularly problematic. So suppose we now take Vladimir Putin. This is sovereign intervention in a foreign state. Well, no amount of economic incentive is going to change that. Unfortunately, he would be willing to pay millions of dollars, and not just a couple of dollars here and there on an ad budget, to influence an election in one way or a favor. Now, you might argue that Putin doesn't have a right to vote in US, UK, French, or Brazilian elections. So you might presume that you could actually shut him out if you could identify him. That's another one. The most problematic of the categories, I might argue, is actually the citizen ideologue. They actually do have a right to speak. Uh, and you get this very bizarre behavior, you know, particularly in the United States, you might get folks uh, speaking about flat earth or abortion or gun control. And no amount of economic incentive is necessarily going to change their behavior on any of these things. So what are we to do to actually solve this particular problem? So let me walk you through 
three different possible interventions. Uh, and also going to tie back to what I think the nature of the real harm is. Intervention number one is one that I would call is actually one of the easiest. Suppose that you would actually try to put friction on liars and not just on lies. So it is the case that Facebook and Twitter have already tried to say, shall we say, demote items in the newsfeed. But now what happens is the following. Suppose that you're an ideologue and you're trying to convince folks not to vote for Hillary or that there is a flat earth. Now, if you're going to do it and you know, the proposal might be something like, if I'm going to put friction on it, hey, we caught you lying in the past. You know what? Now you're restricted to 10 messages. They're going to go out anytime over the next two weeks. And you know what? Your network size is now half what it used to be. If you do it again, we're going to do it again. You're going to get five messages. It's going to go any time over the next month, and we're going to cut it in half again. Now, what you've done is you've moved it. Rather than certifying ex post the truth of the message, the person that's writing it, the person that knows they're lying, the person that knows they're creating a falsehood, you put the shoe, you put the burden on them. Now, if they're going to try to persuade someone, they're going to have to use true information to do it. So we've shifted the burden to the source of the lie by actually putting friction on the liar. In this case, it might well work on particular presidents or others if it's the case that you actually put friction on the liars as well as the lies. And that, I think, is one of the principal interventions that needs to take place. Now, yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. I mean, time was when, you know, back in back in back in the day when the, you, you look to see which newspaper, depending on your obviously, again, your your subjective point of view. But certain newspapers had a reputation for, for more balanced information or for getting their facts straight. We had yeah. those filters. Um, yes. those filters are largely gone now. That's the trouble. That's one of the difficulties. So I like that one. Tell me about the second one. Okay. Let's dig into some of these other, uh, these, some of these other issues in here. Now we actually have some interesting challenges. Why hasn't Facebook or Twitter already implemented this particular one? Well, it's interesting that the business model, unfortunately, is one that actually promotes engagement. And even if you're talking about putting lies out on there or Pizzagate, you get folks really fired up in this, which promotes engagement. So it's not necessarily in the interest of the business model to actually put friction on liars yet if you're reducing the engagement. We'll come back to that in a moment. So we actually need to change incentives to the platforms themselves to actually behave a little bit better uh, within this context. Now, let's go back to the nature of harm. Remember, one of them was decision error, and the other is externalities. I want to see if I can give you an illustration of how others have solved an analogous problem. We want to learn from fake news based on what I would say fake handbooks. I'll give you a simple example. Suppose that you are buying a fake handbook on Alibaba. You buy a $3,000 Bottega Veneta bag for $50, complete with certificate of authenticity. Do you believe it's really a Bottega Veneta bag? Of course not. So who's going to complain in this case? Is the seller going to complain? No, they just made a sale. Is the buyer going to complain? No, they're thrilled they got a $3,000 item for $50. Is the platform going to complain? No, they got the engagement. In that context, you don't solve the problem. The externality is off-platform. Bottega Veneta is the party that's getting harmed off-platform. That's what's happening with fake news. You're getting engagement on platform, and the parties that are creating and sharing are not going to complain. So everyone in there wins, but the damage is occurring off-platform. So in your, so your early example, the, the danger, the, the damage is happening to Hillary Clinton or to... Precisely. It's happening to Hillary Clinton or it's happening to the voters in that particular yeah. context. Okay. So here again is where we need some regulatory intervention. 
for what it's worth, we've written this up in a paper, uh, The Problem of Fake News. So we didn't try to, I, I walked through what the problems are, what I think a couple of remedies and uh, points of redress would be. In the context of externality, where you've got knowledge of the transaction and you've got knowledge of the harm, there are two and only two logical solutions. In this case, we can either move knowledge of the harm onto the platform. So the damage that's occurring off platform needs to be combined onto that as one. I would argue against that solution for a variety of reasons, but two of them are, one, you create an incredibly even more powerful platform. You're allowing them to vacuum up all the information off the platform in order to address the harm that's occurring off the platform. Two, you haven't necessarily changed their incentives yet. So even though they may have the information, they may not necessarily be motivated to solve it. The second element, however, is to move knowledge of the transaction off platform to where the harm is occurring. In this case, you might void the local trade secret about just the transaction. So if the Trump campaign is whispering in the ear of a coal miner in Pennsylvania, but you now allow Hillary Clinton to see that, it's not private information anymore, then the Hillary campaign can go in and offer a counter narrative to undo the damage. The party with the, experiencing the damage now has access to the information in order that they can undo it. So we've moved knowledge of the transaction to knowledge of the harm, and you can now actually get a solution in this case. So it actually, in some sense, decentralizes detection, and it also decentralizes the incentives. Um, so we've actually then addressed part of the externality in the problem uh, so that we can actually fix it. That's the second solution. I can see how that could um, be a step forward. Um... I guess I guess then it's a battle of the the two propaganda schools, if you like. It's it's, but at least it's a fairer fight. At least it's a fairer fight in that context, yeah, yeah, right? Okay. At least so, it's a fairer uh, fight. Interesting. interesting. Tell us about the third intervention. So the third one, there is a long, and this is going to be the most controversial. So this one is going to be where we're going to get a little bit of interesting debate going on this one. All right, and I have to say up front. This is absolutely not where I started. This was through a long path of actually trying to analyze the historical literature on where we go to address externalities. There is a really well-established economic history of how you deal with externality problems, okay? And there are basically two different mechanisms. The first one was done by a Nobel Prize winner, Ronald Coase. And his idea is, if there are markets with externalities, you may be able to actually solve those externalities by getting folks to agree on the harm, a good, or if there's something that's taking place, you want the parties that are in the, uh, get, the party experiencing the harm and the party producing the harm to in some sense interact over it to figure it out. If a classic example might be pollution um, and you know, fake news is in effect a form of pollution, a blight on society. And uh, the challenge is um, would you, each has private information in the sense that one knows what's the cost of producing the pollution or avoiding it, the other knows the real cost of the damage. And that's private information. If the government were to try to intervene, in many cases, they don't have the, the external information, externally they don't have the information that the parties have, so you can try to get them to bargain by a property right. So you might gain a property right in clean air, which they then have to buy from you in order to pollute. This is what's giving us pollution markets for CO2, and it's a great design. That's the yeah. kind of solution. And how, would that, how, does, yeah, how does that work in this context? Well, I want to argue, I'm, going, I'm giving you the whole space of solutions. I want to argue that one can't work here. Okay. The reason that one can't, so again, I'm only trying to cover all the bases. That theoretical contract, Nobel Prize winning idea, cannot work because in this case, the pollution itself is the communication and the transactions cost in the, in the communication is so high that you can't communicate in order to avoid communication. 
It doesn't make sense. So we also know from Coase's ideas that if the transactions costs are too high, that mechanism fails. That only leaves us with one other main mechanism, which is another famous uh, economist, uh, economist in, the, in Pigou. Pigou actually argued that in some cases what you want to do, if, if an organization is producing damage on society, often what you do is you tax them proportional to the damage that they're creating uh, around them. This causes them to internalize the true costs of what they're doing in a way that then gets them to modify their behavior. It's also, it's called a Pigovian tax. So what you do is you estimate the amount of damage and then you assign that to the firm producing it and then actually then uh, they will change their behavior in a way that then modifies the outcome. So you'll get less pollution in that case. Now, use energy as a metaphor. We can't have zero energy in an economy. You don't have an economy with zero energy. So we're gonna to have to tolerate at least a little pollution in there. But then the tax helps to adjust that something happens in the right way. Go back to the first solution. Why is it that a, pl a platform like Facebook isn't putting friction on liars as well as lies? They're not experiencing the harm. If you were to tax them in proportion to the harm, now they would be internalizing the damage. Now they would be motivated in order to actually implement that first solution, which they weren't doing in the first case, okay? So what we wanna do is to actually get them to internalize some of the damage that they themselves are imposing on society off-platform. It's analogous to, to, you know, we had that other example of intellectual property. And again, if you're violating someone else's property, you're gonna pay a penalty for that, um, for that violation. So you need to get the sources of the harm to internalize the damage of the harm. And the Pigovian tax is perhaps one of the best known ways to do exactly that. Fantastic. To a certain extent, too, thereby you are putting the friction onto the platform, at least, so that they will then put some friction onto the liars. So that's another that way. Correct. Yeah. Now, let me, let me give you several other elements of that, why it makes it matter. So the first objection, and it's a completely legitimate, would be, aren't you putting a tax on speech? I would argue, absolutely not, if this is crafted in the right way. Because I want to make absolutely certain this is crafted in proportion to harm, not on speech. So let me give you a distinction. You absolutely, in this proposal, cannot and should not put a tax on Tiananmen Square uprising. That's wrong. In contrast, you might put a tax on um, broken windows and burned out cars. That's on the damage, right? So you want, again, you're trying to put the tax on the damage, not on any particular utterance. It's wrong to actually prevent an idea or specific utterance. What you're trying to do is merely to get a firm to internalize the damage and not on any specific speech act. It's essential that that distinction be made if you're actually gonna understand how this should actually work. Another element of it, go back at what some of the original, the failures of some of the original solutions in here. How are you gonna do these things at scale? You don't have to. We could implement something of this exactly like from the traditional PAC um, intervention. So if you're trying to get pollution control of air or water, what do you do? A statistical sample on the air or the water. In this case, you could do a statistical sample of the pollution that's taking place, and even half-truths are picked up in this case. You don't have to certify full truth. All you're having to do is to pick up a statistically valid sample of the amount of damage that's being uh, caused by the particular place. So it solves this scale problem, right? And it, uh, so not only does the putting friction on liars as well as lies put the onus back on the source of the damage, this is now causing the platform, which is the 
uh, communicator of this damage to internalize some of that damage in order to put friction in the right places. So yeah. it's a it's a complementary set of solutions which, if enacted, should motivate the platform to do the right thing as well is getting the ecosystem partners to do the right thing. So it's an integrated series of things all trying to be matched together at the same time. Sounds easy. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound easy, but it's fascinating to apply some of these dis different disciplines and different ways of thinking to you know, a, a different sort of problem. So I, it, I find it fascinating. Well, we've tried to articulate this again. The, the article is the problem of fake news. And we really try to, what I've tried to do in there is to combine a set of ideas from information economics, uh, transactions cost economics, um, and also network economics and externalities. Each of these things need to be brought together in order to try to create a comprehensive solution. Because I think if we're only tackling, tackling a piece of it, you're, it it's such a multi-headed uh, hydra, that if you're only tackling a piece of it, it's gonna come back in another area. So we need a more systemic approach to solving the problem. Marshall, absolutely fascinating. Um, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Absolutely brilliant. And thank you for your interest. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.